What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Elliot Brown writes about startups and venture capital out of the Wall Street Journal San Francisco office. He previously covered commercial real estate and economic development from New York City. Elliot's new book, The Cult of We, breaks down what happened over the last few years with WeWork. In this conversation, we discuss WeWork, startup funding, Adam Newman, SoftBank, and a few crazy stories. I really enjoyed this conversation with Elliot, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is Remote. When you use Remote, you can employ people in other countries legally and easily. They take care of international payroll, employee benefits, tax headaches, and all the paperwork for local compliance. Forget about location and hire the best person for every open role using Remote. Remote's platform is easy to use for full-time employees, contractors, and your HR team. Whether you're a major corporation or a small startup, Remote has the tools and resources to help you at a price you can afford. Even better, listeners to this podcast get a special deal. You can sign up for Remote today and receive 50% off your first employee for the first three months. Check out remote.com slash pomp and enter promo code POMP to get started. If you're hiring people around the world, you have to be using Remote. They are fantastic. Go to remote.com slash POMP today and you'll see why. Next up is BlockFi. I'm an investor in the business. I'm a user. I sit on the board. I'm a very, very happy user and so will you. BlockFi provides financial products for crypto investors. Those products include a high yield interest account, a US dollar loan against your crypto collateral, and a no crypto a no fee cryptocurrency trading platform. They also just came out with a Bitcoin rewards credit card. It's a regular credit card. When you swipe it, you get Bitcoin back rather than cash back or airline miles. I have so much fun with that credit card. It makes me almost want to spend more money so I can earn more Bitcoin back. To start earning today, visit blockfi.com slash pomp. Again, blockfi.com slash pomp. Go check it out. I highly, highly, highly recommend checking out the Bitcoin Rewards credit card. Nothing else like it on the market, and I really enjoy it. Last but not least is Choice. They are rebuilding the way you approach retirement, which starts with making it simple to include Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies in your savings. More than 20,000 Bitcoiners, myself included, have already signed up to start investing. Whether we are talking about crypto or stocks, Choice lets you trade real Bitcoin and Amazon in the same place all without paying a dime in capital gains taxes. And if you want to hold your own keys all the way to the moon, you can do that too. Either way, Choice is on a mission to give you full control over your retirement savings. So head on over to retirewithchoice.com slash pomp. Again, retirewithchoice.com slash pomp and sign up for an account today. And one more thing, you know how I feel about this, but if you have a pro that manages your money, don't take any BS. Choice has tools for them too. Take back control today and visit retirewithchoice.com slash pomp. I use it and so should you. Retirewithchoice.com slash pomp. All right, let's get into this episode with Elliot. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Elliot, what's going on, man? Maybe let's just start with, um, you know, kind of your journey of covering WeWork, because the book really was uh, the culmination of a lot of the coverage, I think, that you had of the WeWork story as it unfolded. Uh, Yeah, totally. So so I had been covering WeWork since 2013 is when I first met Adam, and I was a real estate reporter, and I was like, what is this real estate company? And then 
uh, quickly found out their valuation, which was at the time like one and a half billion dollars. And I was like, what type of sense does that make at all? It's a tiny real estate company and all they do is real estate, but they keep telling me they're not a real estate company and they're about community. And so uh, it just, things got just crazier from there. Like the valuation kept going up. We'd write stories about how it seemed like an overvalued real estate company. And then it would go up more. They'd do really crazy things. He'd take money out of the company, he'd buy a wave pool company. He started an elementary school uh, and then it, it got even bigger. And then uh, everything imploded in like this totally crazy immolation in, in, in 2019 when, um, yeah, like $40 billion of value disappeared. So when you first come across WeWork and you're told it's a community company, it's all these things other than a real estate business, you're obviously talking to other people in the real estate business as your job as real estate uh, reporter. What was the general sense? Did people just not know about it? Were they like, that's complete nonsense? Did they buy the, the kind of story or the hype or, or kind of what was everybody else saying? So in, in real estate, it was interesting because, uh, you know, on the one hand, they didn't a lot of the landlords just didn't understand. They're like, yeah, it seems like a real estate company to me, uh, but they weren't investing in it. They all they wanted was rent and WeWork was paying them rent. And so they were kind of, you know, depending on the landlord, pretty happy to have someone to pay maybe even slightly higher than normal rent. Uh, and so. Uh, then you'd have these conversations and people would be like, yeah, I kind of don't really understand how it's that different, but I don't know, maybe it works. But then the investors that invested with Adam were largely venture capital investors or tech investors. And he was just able to, to like get them to, to look at, at this thing, which was very clearly office space and just tell them it was, no, it's about the energy. It's about the community. And he'd say it in enough of a convincing way, often with like shots of tequila uh, that they, you know, sort of went along with it and, and would just value this thing as really different. It's like 20 times the value of, of what a normal real estate company would be. Because, uh, yeah, there's comparable companies you can look to and be like, what's it worth? So it, it was quite the difference. So when you think of the WeWork model, is it fair to categorize it as they would go into space uh, that a landlord owned, they would say, hey, we will rent it for from you for $1 a square foot, to use easy numbers, and I'm gonna turn around and I'm gonna rent out uh, after kind of fractionalizing it to some degree, and I'm gonna charge the equivalent of two or $3 per square foot. So you as the landlord get your $1 per square foot, you're happy, and then they're taking the difference kind of theoretically between uh, what they're charging their uh, members versus what they're paying you? Yeah, th that precisely. And they would be the other sort of key thing to mention is WeWork would sign a 10 year lease, which is standard for these office buildings because the landlords didn't like doing monthly leases because uh, they couldn't get a loan from a bank. So WeWork was essentially taking the risk and then saying to these t graphic designers or, or tiny companies, uh, yeah, you you can leave any time. You, you can just pay by the, the month. But to pay by the month, they would have to sort of pay up and pay WeWork that like additional money. So in that sense, it's like a pretty good business that that's real. People forget like there were some real things about WeWork, uh, but that doesn't mean that you're you should be worth uh, like you know infinity uh, or forty seven billion dollars. And so that that's where things got crazy. So as uh, this kind of happens, you pretty early found them. You know, given where they ended up going. Um, is this something where the founders start out, they've got kind of an idea, they start to execute, and then they just buy their own hype over time and they kind of double and triple down and, and things get worse? Or very early on, would you like, ah, eh, something here is like off and I should pay more attention because this seems like, uh, you know, it's juicy, if you will. Uh, well, so yeah, I mean, I, I was just interested and sort of baffled by this concept of 
uh, sort of startup inflation um, where not tech companies were claiming they were tech companies. And we I've, I've been told I overly obsess in the book about Casper, uh, the mattress company that, you know, raised money at like a tech valuation. And then you look at like what they do and it's like. They just they don't even make their own mattresses. They pay somebody else to make the mattresses. Uh, and and it's like it's a mattress company. <laughs> and so I think that to, to me, that's what was really interesting about this. It's like they they were finding smart people and, and investors and, and employees and getting them to like convince them that they were a tech company. And, and then you ask, like, well, how? And the explanations made up, like to me at least, maybe I, you know, wasn't seeing it, but it just like made no sense. It's like you have an app that makes you a tech company. Like people are paying for real estate. So I was really interested in that. I was really interested in in sort of, um, yeah, just how kind of zany Adam Newman was. And then as like the story grew, it got like you learned. It's like God, this guy is doing all these crazy things. Like why is he flying private? At starting at like when WeWork was a Series B company, uh, you know, they're essentially a tiny startup. Um, and, uh, you know, then it's like, why does he pass out trays of tequila uh, to the entire staff and have them do shots on like a Monday? Um, and, uh, yeah, things, uh, it was just like the more you'd look, you'd be like, what is going on in the world that this thing is, is becoming one of the most valuable com- startups in the country? What was the craziest? thing that you found like you were you know from 2013 till today right when when uh, the book's coming out is a long time uh i've heard insane stories uh from both people who work there and also people who uh who just kind of watch from the outside what do you in your opinion is the craziest thing that you came across okay so i'll start with one that is is kind of boring but i find totally insane and and so (laughs) that is like at the end of the day this guy adam newman you know, sort of convinced the world this thing was a tech company it raised, you know, it went up from you know zero to 47 billion and then back down to 8 billion in valuation. So people lose billions of dollars. Uh, and he walks away with like one and one to two billion plus dollars. Uh, so like he, he essentially was was paid hundreds of millions of dollars to leave the company and then stay away from it and not control it. Uh, and it's like, that's the system like (laughs) you convince people to give you all this money and then to make it so they don't you don't take the thing to zero they pay you hundreds of millions of dollars more um so that that's that is one crazy thing um in terms of others that we could there's probably a a list of like 300 i could do uh i i I, in terms of like more related to tequila um and and pot uh i one of the best stories we have in the book that it's really tiny anecdote but was just a fun one was uh on one flight um they were there was so much pot smoke that the uh, on his private jet that the crew had to put on oxygen masks Wait, what? <laughs> is that confirmed? He just likes smoking on his plane. <laughs> yeah, is that confirmed? Uh, I mean, to put it in the book, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the they smoked the so much weed on the plane that the crew had to wear oxygen masks? <laughs> so this is it's sort of pairing with like the, there were a lot of rowdy things on private jets. And like he actually would rent for the first years of WeWork, he was renting a private jet. And one of the private jet companies, VistaJet, was just always complaining to WeWork staff about how Adam had ruined this or that on the jet. And they had to take a jet out of service because a credenza was torn down <laughs> and like stains were on the carpet from wine or something. And another jet company sent them an email like, 
the passengers were spitting tequila on each other and like, <laughs> walking around without a sh- like without any clothes on. And they left. Uh, they got sick across the plane and the bathroom or something like that. <laughs> I mean, it's- so he loved jets. He just like absolutely obsessed over them. And I think that I read at one point that like there would be meetings on the jet as well. Right. So so it was like there was partying, but there was like meetings as well. Yeah. And so some of these people, I mean, you'd some people would be like, you know, in his office and waiting outside for two hours because he was absolutely late for everything. And then he'd be like, come with me. And so they go in the car with him to JFK or Teterboro or whatever airport. And then be like, come on the jet. And so then you would just like continue your meeting on the jet. And then the plane would arrive in Boston and he'd be like, OK, now go find your own way home. Uh, so <laughs> be meetings um, They're often, you know, people said it was like really hard to get um Go, they, they hated flying with Adam overseas because you couldn't sleep because you were either working the whole night or partying or both. Uh, so, <laughs> Is this a, a work hard, play hard scenario or is this uh, play hard and like somebody else does the work? Like, how, how would you categorize it? Oh, definitely the former. Adam, Adam worked really hard. He, he worked, uh, you know, his biggest sort of talent in that regard was like, he just didn't need sleep. I mean, there was this story from the CFO where he told me once where like Adam had the CFO in a meeting until 1.30 a.m. or two at the office. And then he, Adam was like, I, I really want to go surfing sometime. Um, and the CFO was like, you can use my beach house. And so then Adam, the, the CFO comes in at 8 a.m. or 7.30 a.m. the next morning or something like that. And he gets there and Adam is in the office in his beach clothes, having already gone surfing that morning at the guy's beach house near Rockaway. <laughs> That's nuts. Um, when you think about kind of the uh, WeWork rise, how much of it is you have to have a founder like this to build this type of company? And at some point they become uh, kind of difficult to scale it. And so it's like, you know, what got us here may not get us to where we want to go versus some other founder who uh, maybe had different tendencies or, or different preferences uh, could have built the same company. Yeah, I, I think there, you know, this whole story is uh, is an outgrowth of sort of the the type of founder that Silicon Valley and the venture capitalists on Sand Hill Road really like to promote, which is, you know, in the words of sort of like the Founders Fund website, they look for founders with near messianic qualities, I think is the quote. Um, and so that's the type of, of founder who really like Adam was really good at motivating people. Uh, in hindsight, they all kind of hated him for it, or a lot of them did because he was sort of, you know, made them work in, insanely hard and sort of do the impossible. But they did sort of the impossible. They hit really crazy deadlines. Um, and I, I do think that to grow so fast because they just grew so rapidly, you, you need something like that. Now, the other way of looking at it is, uh, WeWork grew revenue so incredibly fast that they also grew losses at this just such an extraordinary rate. It, it's really astounding. I mean, so it was not um, they were able to to grow that fast. They, they hit two billion dollars of revenue in nine years. Um, and but it was at just an extraordinary cost where they were spending four billion dollars a year. So you spend four billion, you make two billion. And so then you have negative two billion, which isn't I think the way these these businesses are supposed to work. So my last question before I let Joe and John uh, ask you a couple is, um, what would be your bull case 
or kind of your bull argument for the positive impact that WeWorks had on the world versus the bear case. And I, and I think that a lot of the uh, bear case obviously surrounds around like loss of capital, uh, just insane stories like you, you kind of hinted at there. Um, but is there a bull case or like a, a kind of a counter example that you would use after uh, you've kind of spent so much time looking at it that you kind of say like this would be the, the thing that I would harp on? So, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of depends on, on your framing, but um, one of the things they really did, so, well, I guess a couple of things, they, they really did find a, a new demand out there for a different type of office space. There had always been this, this concept of, of subleasing uh, and, and sort of temporary office space, but, but they made it much more institutional. They, they made it so now it's a thing where, where companies want sort of more hip office space, like big kind of boring companies and Citibank and UBS want um, more hip office space. And they also want more flexibility. So they're leasing for one year at a time instead of 10. Uh, and uh, now real big landlords have sort of copied WeWork and tried to adopt that. And so that, you know, that, like that, that's not um, changing the, the making the world that much of a better place uh, or elevating consciousness as, as WeWork uh, said they were going to do. Um, but but th that's a thing in real estate uh, now, you know, then like it, they also created a lot of really nice space. Like, I think their office space is pretty good. Like there's people complain about this and that. But all things considered, I think they had good design taste and, and they build a good product. They had smart people working there. Um, and then, yeah, on the, on the bear side, uh, the thing that I like to say that's a little less tangible than just sort of destruction of, of, of capital is uh, they, they just distorted reality. And it was really frustrating being a reporter covering this for so long because people just started saying things and believing things that that, at least to me and based on my understanding of the laws of gravity, made no sense. And it was like, I mean, the big thing people would always say is like, well, the thing that people that makes we work special is they're here paying for the energy. Uh, and it's like, what is energy worth? Uh, I, I, I mean, it seems like they're paying the same amount that they'd pay for office space because uh, they were paying competitors were charging the same thing that, and they didn't have energy. But like people just really believed so firmly uh, because Adam was such a good salesman and sort of taught them to see th this thing that wasn't that they were a disruptive tech company, even though there was like no evidence of it. And so um, that uh, it, it was just like really frustrating. So we communicating to that world and, and dealing with WeWork for, for years. Joe, John, what do you guys got? Yeah, I'll, I'll start. Thanks for doing this, Elliot. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited to, to read the book. But so uh, I want to talk about SoftBank real quick. The they obviously lost a bunch of money on this. I think the valuation went from forty five, fifty billion dollars to two or three billion uh, in, in a short period of time. And I'm curious when it comes to SoftBank, um, kind of how much did they know about the summer camps, the tequila shots, the private flights versus uh, just being blinded by the whole kind of change the world type vision that Adam was pitching? So, yeah, I think they and the other investors, um, it would have been so impossible to avoid knowing about Adam's antics and, and him being sort of totally crazy. And it's like, what, this guy, you know, drinks a lot it, uh, because his pitch to a lot of these investors was to and sort of especially like baby boomers in suits was they'd walk in at 1030 in the morning and and he'd just like feed them tequila shots uh, as, a, as a bit performative. He'd, he'd be made, they'd, they'd feel cool in his presence. So SoftBank, I mean, they just had to know about some of the stuff like that. They did a lot of due diligence on the company after they agreed to invest four billion dollars in it. Uh, and then actually their analysts came back and said, you guys realize we've looked at this twice before we passed twice before uh, they didn't hit any of the, their projections um, that they gave us before. 
uh, and it's a real estate company. And then, you know, Masasone at SoftBank is like, no, 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 but I like Adam. It's visionary. He's visionary. It's an AI company. He's the next Jack Ma. And then they wrote like the second largest check ever written to a U.S. startup. So, um, you know, I, th- I think SoftBank knew, but it was like in a bubbly mentality, you you just don't focus on the negative and you, you just, your eyes are drawn to the positive. And so in a normal time, you would have been like, well, here's all these 55 reasons. This is a bad investment. And like, here's this one. And you would look at the 55 and the one, uh, and be like, yeah, I'll probably go with the 55. Um, but in a bubbly time, you like look at the one and you're like, but, but it could change the world's real estate market. Um, and you sort of forget the other issues. Yeah. Um, Elliot, one congrats on the book. I know that's a big accomplishment, but um, I'm curious what you think about Adam himself. You spent a lot of time, obviously, reviewing the whole situation. Like, what do you think his strengths are? Because I see a lot of people kind of investing in founders and sound like he was very good talker, salesman, all that. I'm curious what you think his strengths and weaknesses kind of were. Yeah, and, and, and he he did have strengths. Like, I mean, his ability to really early on, what he'd do is uh, – he'd sign a lease at a new building. Um, he's sort of an enormous risk taker. So that's one. Um, so he, he'd have the, the sort of willingness and, and vision to sign a lease before they were finished with their first building. And then he'd tell his team, okay, well, uh, we're opening on this date. And they'd be like, oh, no, no, there's no way we can do that. Um, and he's like, well, I already signed some new customers to come there. So you guys got to. And then they would like do it. They would sort of, he would will the impossible into existence. And so, um, I, you know, I, I don't know that uh, that's a sort of long term strategy with the same workers because they get very tired and eventually get married and have kids and, and can't do it anymore. <laughs> but because um, they, they work really hard. But but that's like totally an important skill. And we work actually did uh, for the one year in its history, turn a profit around then in, in 2012. Um, and so uh, he was also like really talented at communicating a vision. Obviously, in the end, it was a, a mirage and, and a hollow vision. But uh, if he had had a like a little bit, maybe maybe a little less ambition, or um, had a more of a real like tech company uh, that he was building instead of a real estate company, uh, that's also a, a great skill. Like he his the reason he could raise so much money is beyond sort of making these people feel fun and 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 giving them tequila was because he was able when you get in a room with him he would talk about the future in a way where it just felt so real like i met him in 2013 and you know he's like 40 minutes late and i was like, where is this guy uh and he brings me in and he he, he like shows me his laptop with a video of their summer camp and and him like riding around on a boat and uh then we like have this long conversation he's like name dropping like Rahm Emanuel and Ashton Kutcher uh, but then he like talks about how he's like when we open up in Portland in in nine months we're going to be full within two weeks and I would sit there thinking like wow what a good business like that's crazy and then I left and I was like how would he know that? Like, he can't know they're going to be open. Like, it's like literally impossible for him to know that it's in the future. Um, and so uh, I think he would, was really able to sort of bend reality and like get people to just like live in the future with him, um, which is a, like an important skill for, for luring talent and money. And, and it's, it's just nice when it's real, I guess. And, and did you feel that he uh, ever had real genuine aspirations for WeWork? Or do you think a lot of it was still centered around kind of the notion of he, him wanting uh, fame and wealth and kind of notoriety for this stuff? I, I think he melded the two in his mind. Like, so, so I, I don't think there was some sort of like evil plan where he took out a, a, a whiteboard and said, like, how to best enrich myself. Step one, pretend it's a tech company. Um, and like, I do think he would drink his own Kool-Aid. Uh, but I think it was like a, you can sort of see it in the marketing over time. It, it became like it shifted. Like at first, 
when the social network, the movie had come out and, and Facebook was a big thing, he was telling everyone, and I think himself, that he had a physical social network. And then suddenly when the sharing economy is in vogue, uh, he's telling everyone, like, no, no, we're part of the sharing economy. We, we share space. Uh, and so like he uh, his mind, he was a chameleon and like his his uh, mind would sort of quickly change color for whatever the sort of in vogue financing was at the time. And what happened to the to they had like a living concept at one point, right? Outside of offices where people would come. What happened with that? What's the, what's the story there? <laughs> we live. So yeah. everyone is always like, we live such a great idea. So we live was like essentially an adult dorm where like it's like, well, if you're 23, you can rent by the month and you you the furniture is already there and, and you can have friends built in and like. You know, I think that's actually a good concept. The problem is like economics. Uh, one of the like one of the reasons that that we work works so well is they would take a normal office space and then they were able to pack people in uh, at much denser rates. So they were able to get more revenue per square foot. Uh, but if you you pack like four times as many people in apartment as you used to, it's called like an illegal tenement. And they had those in the 1910s and, and they were pretty gross. So uh, you, you, you need a certain amount of space to live in, in modern society. And uh, then it's harder to, to make the economics work there. And so then it's like, why wouldn't I just build a normal apartment and make more money. Uh, and so that's what ended up happening to it. So they're, they're, they only did two of them. Adam would always talk about how they were going to do more. He once had a meeting with Brian Chesky, two meetings. He was like, let's do 10,000 apartments uh, together for the new we live. And Brian Chesky of Airbnb was like, uh, that's a little small for us because we, we have like millions of apartments on our platform. And then Adam comes back and he's like, let's do a million apartments together. And then Brian Chesky's like, where are you going to get the like, you know, scribbling down? It's like one trillion dollars you need to build that. Uh, and I'm saying, well, Masa. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it didn't go very far. Talk to us a little bit about uh, the transition. Obviously, there was the um, kind of loss of the the market cap, um, and eventually SoftBank steps in. And, and uh, I spent some time with the SoftBank people, and they seem, uh, from like an operations standpoint, uh, to have really gone in there and completely turned that business around um, and, and uh, started to drive a recovery uh, that appears to be working, right? And again, I, I think they would be the first to say, like, you know, not out of the woods yet. You got to build a great business. You got to serve customers. Got to do all the right things. But during that transition period. Uh, you were reporting on this, you know, it seemed like uh, definitely weekly or almost daily or hourly. I mean, it was like just nonstop, you know, there was always a rumor or something happening. So like, what, what do you remember from that time period and, and kind of were there any main takeaways uh, when that transition was happening? This is in the, the sort of 2019 implosion uh, era. Yeah. So, yes, that, that was kind of as a journalist, a tiring uh, and but thrilling time to cover uh, as this this thing. Like I'd spent years wondering, like, where what, what is with reality that this thing is worth so much? And then just like became like the biggest business story uh, for, for weeks. Um, so. Uh, right afterward, there was a ton of, uh, by, by the media, by investors, um, by shareholders, like a ton of interest in SoftBank and this whole strategy. I mean, they raised the world's largest private investment fund. It was like, I think, 30 times bigger than the next biggest venture capital fund that had been raised beforehand. Um, and uh, and it was just it's sort of a realization that, that they were making some really, really reckless or spending it in really, really reckless and dumb ways and kind of absurd ways. Right. Like 
uh, and they at the time they ended up betting huge on ride hail, which was less of an absurd and uh, absurd bet. But ride hail, like Lyft and Uber stock had plunged. Like it was clearly not the golden goose they thought it was. They, they bet sort of at the peak and they, they're still hurting from that. Um, and then you just looked at these other things and it's like, they invested seven or, you know, $375 million in a robot pizza company that didn't make its own robots. And also why do you need robot pizza? Uh, and, um, like that went, you know, to effectively zero, uh, they, they invested in wag. So, uh, the, the dog walking Uber for dog walking that, that did not go well. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think there was sort of like this realization of like, uh, the the you know all of the money that's flooding into Silicon Valley largely through the Vision Fund is just like uh, the, the total crap and uh, you know what, what's with our our world and our, our economy that that we we thought these were smart investments and you know that that's changed some sense because uh, of uh, the the um, I guess when you bet macro on the you know unicorn economy the startup economy. Uh, it's been going really well for everyone else. Uh, so SoftBank uh, ended up, to, if you look back today, they're they're not uh, in the red. Uh, it's not, I don't think, a good investment. Like if, if you look at how much they've made, it's gone up like the Vision Fund's gone up like 50% in value in, in five years or four years. And the NASDAQ's gone up like 2x more or more. So that's not like a great investment, but um, but but it's looking a lot better because they, they like, you know, put 600 million into DoorDash that became like $8 billion or something like that. Elliot, the name of the book is The Cult of We. Uh, and also uh, we work Adam Newman in The Great Startup Delusion, uh, using words like cult, delusion, et cetera. Um, how much of this is around this one business versus a sign of the times and like kind of a more macro uh, trend where uh, people want to believe in the other world changing technology, they want to believe in uh, in specific things. And did you get any sense of that as you were covering uh, this specific company, whether it was like a, a company specific or, or just, hey, the whole industry, this was happening? Totally. So uh, I, we we think that, you know, the, the main theme of the book is, is that uh, WeWork was just the most extreme of a trend. So it was not this like total insane, it, it, it wasn't completely aberrant business. It, it was actually just representative of, of stuff that was going on throughout it. So, I mean, if you rewind to when this was really kind of the rocket ship was, was taking off in 2015, uh, I mean, like there was just this whole obsession with like the Uber for X. And so, you know, there were like three Uber for valet parking companies that were essentially just giving you subsidized valet parking that lost gobs of money every time you parked your car. Uh, and uh, you know, I mentioned things like Casper. It's like, I mean, you, you have the same thing with scooters where suddenly everyone is obsessing over how scooters are going to disrupt walking. Um, and you could at the time be like, you know, they just tried this in China with bikes and there's like literal viral photos of graveyards of these bikes. Cause it's such a bad business. Um, why are you treating this as like the next disruptive software company? Uh, and you know, money would just flood in. Uh, so I, I think that it was um, like, and to a certain extent still is, but just in different pockets. Uh, but you, you had these like consumer tech companies that uh, were consumer companies that said they were tech companies that uh, just got these extraordinary valuations just by like talking a story. And to me, that's not like, you know, journalists, I think, should live in, in the now, not the future. And uh, like it's the venture capitalist job to bet that one out of 10 of these is going to make it really big. But the the, the population at large, uh, the media should portray things more in the now. And it's like, 
you have a cool app that connects people to drivers and loses like a couple bucks every time somebody takes a ride. Uh, like it could work out, but that's not like completely disrupting the whole economy to the point where you need like 50 of these Uber for Uber for cookies and Uber for ice cream or whatever. Uh, like, let's figure out how Uber works first. So I think that was going on. And now I think it's kind of shifted into different areas. Like it's pulled back in the consumer area and there's just a lot of money in like software, which is, is probably healthier. What moving forward are you looking for from the business? Uh, obviously, you've got the book now. Um, are there specific things that you're like, you know, hey, if they can do A, B, and C, then they'll be successful? Are you looking for uh, specific red flags or, or lack of milestones? And you're like, okay, these are going to be the warning signs. Like, how, how do you kind of just look at it at a forward looking basis? Yeah, we were exchanged a lot. I mean, it's like basically after it imploded in 2019 um, and Adam, the CEO, was ousted. Uh, they put in SoftBank, put in a, you know, experienced real estate operator and former CEO of a mall company to run it. And so what's happened is it went from being a company that had a mission to elevate the world's consciousness to now a company like very much focused on, uh, you know, real estate and, and flexible office space. So I think it's kind of an interesting time. They, they, they managed to survive COVID, you know, they burned a lot more cash, um, and, and occupancy just, you know, the, 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 the people renting their desks just fled, right? Like occupancy felt really low. Uh, but now, you know, it's sort of this weather vane for the post COVID economy and what happens with the office. And there's like an interesting theory where a lot of companies just aren't going to know what to do with office. Like who's going to be there, you know, three days a week, who's going to be there five. Are we going to do all remote? Are we, you know, going to have more regional offices? Um, and for that, from that perspective, we work, if, if that is, is the big path, like we work probably a good business to be in right now in that they like companies don't want to make 10 year leases if they don't know what the office is going to look like. So um, if that happens, then uh, they're probably going to be well positioned. Like, but I think the thing that is not going to happen, uh, I would imagine, is that people like its valuation isn't going back to 47 billion anytime soon. I mean, it, it, it's it, it's office space and there's only so much somebody's going to be willing to pay for office space. And uh, every time you need a new desk, you have to pay to build the desk. So uh, unlike software where you can sort of charge, if, if there's unlimited demand, you can charge gobs of money and you don't have to spend any new money every time you ship somebody some code across the internet tubes or whatever. So, uh, yeah, I, I think there's a cap on valuation of, of and I imagine it'll be treated like a real estate company, uh, cause it's trying to go public again. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it, it's a real business, um, and it, it could be a good business. It could be a bad, we're, we're just going to have to see how, how things work out. Last question for me, and I don't know if you guys have any, is uh, did you get shit for writing the book? People give you a hard time and any kind of backlash? <laughs> it, so it's actually really fascinating. So it's just for, for years of covering WeWork was just like persona non grata. I would have these calls with executives there where like they'd just be sighing on the other end of the line and they were sort of put on the phone to be defensive and like sort of back, back my stories. Um, and then after everything collapsed, it was sort of like, you know, the wicked witch is dead. And everyone just started like, you know, saying like, you were right. <laughs> and, and, and somebody said there was a, a group chat. Yeah, two people told me this. There was a group chat of like people who were there really old that had a hashtag or Slack or something where it said justice for Elliot. So um, 
people were, uh, I'd say a lot of people who had thought I was just a, a villain beforehand, uh, were like, Oh, I guess you were sort of focused on the right thing. So, so that was good. I do not think Adam Newman was in that camp. Um, I, my sense was he was not, um, terribly happy. Uh, we're writing the book. He didn't cooperate, uh, at least personally, like we, we talked to his PR guy a, a little for the book, but, um, uh, yeah, I, I can't imagine that, that he's eager to have the book out there. Yeah, I, I have one more uh, for you, Elliot. What's Adam up to now? Um, so he's kind of, you know, he's in the Hamptons um, in one of his formerly eight homes. And, and now it's been uh, winnowed down a little. Um, and, uh, you know, I think he's sort of plotting his next act. He's not a guy who's just going to be content to sit on his one to two billion dollars and just, you know, enjoy, you know, throwing money up in the air. Like he really wants to be a player and, and make a dent in the world, uh, as far as we can tell. And so he's talked about like, want to do something on the future of living. Uh, but it, it, like, I'm about to do something big, but then, you know, that was, that was like eight months ago or so. And we haven't heard anything. Um, he's investing in startups. He's trying to invest in more startups. You know, the founders have to take his money. So it's not always easy for anyone. Um, and you know, a lot of it's based in real estate. He, he bought, uh, he, he bought a couple apartment buildings. Um, so, uh, to be determined, I bet if he tries to raise money for something, you know, the, the Silicon Valley is such that it, it funds startup founders that are visionary, even if they had a big failure. So, um, and you know, some people made money off WeWork. So, uh, my, my guess is that won't, wouldn't be that hard for him, uh, just about finding the right guy. Before I let you go, I always ask everybody the same three questions. Uh, first one is just, what's the most important book you've ever read? Can't say your own. What, what, <laughs> what is the most important book you've ever read? Ah, important book. Um, man, what a good question. Uh, I would say um, Barbarians. Well, this is a cop out. Uh, Barbarians at the Gate, because uh, it, it's, it's a similar tale, um, but it, about just like the 80s and, and finance going totally insane. Um, it's sort of a true story of, of just like people losing their minds at the time and, and the, the, you know, capitalism being this, this weird thing that goes in herds. Um, I probably have a better answer, but I think more about it. What, what is, uh, your sleep schedule? This comes from our friends over at eight sleep. Uh, I think every single one of us sleeps on an eight sleep mattress to make it super cold and, uh, has completely changed my life in terms of sleeping way more Dur during 2019. Maybe we can do like the, the chaos versus now what's uh, sleep schedule and how has it changed? Good thing I got that Casper dig in there. Um, uh, <laughs> so I usually go to sleep at like 1130 and wake up at like 730. Uh, but if my boss is because uh, I'm on the West Coast, if my bosses hear this, I, I wake up at six and check my email to make sure nothing has happened. <laughs> <laughs> that Elliot guy, man, he does not sleep. You ever heard of Adam Newman's sleep schedule? <laughs> Elliot has the same exact one. <laughs> I love it. Last question. Uh, aliens, are you a believer or a non-believer? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Wow. What the good question? Sure. Like, uh, the, 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 those are pretty weird videos. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody has blamed the videos yet for their belief, but that, uh, that might be a fair way to, uh, to evaluate it. it, it but brief, like personal view there is like, I don't get you watch all these sci-fi movies. And isn't the answer always that like, Oh, it was actually just time travel. 
Uh, like, how come that's not on the, the docket, too? Why don't people talk about that? <laughs> my personal belief is that uh, there's probably intelligent life out there. It's just either one, too far, so we'll never come in contact during my or your lifetime, or two, uh, if we had the technology, it's kind of like dinosaurs. We're like, oh, they were here, but like, you know, we just missed each other on the time scale. So uh, time travel kind of fits right in with that. Yeah, Rick and Morty makes it seem pretty realistic, so. Absolutely. All right, well, listen, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Uh, the Cult of We, We Work, Adam Newman, and the Great Startup Delusion. I, I told, uh, I feel like Vanna White here, please go buy the book. I'm gonna put the link right now into uh, the YouTube comments. Elliot, where can we send people to follow you on the internet or find more of your work? Um, I have a lot of wry, obnoxious uh, cynicism on Twitter, uh, Elliot WB, Elliot with one L, one T. Um, these days, I'm just promoting books. Uh, and yeah, at the journal, um, I, I just search my name, Elliot Brown WSJ, and you'll get stories about electric vehicle companies with no revenue and uh, SPACs and uh, other fun things. Hopefully not any more co-working stories anytime soon. I, I, I'm going to leave you with this because of what you just said. Uh, I was on CNBC one day and uh, it was one of the these like hour long segments. And usually they just bring me on and talk about Bitcoin and like, you know, see ya. Thanks for, uh, thanks for saying whatever you say, but they wanted me to be on for a whole hour. And I was like, I, what else are you guys going to talk about? Right? Like, I, you know, I don't want to embarrass myself and like, look, if we talk about stocks or whatever, we'll kind of like protect you. We won't really ask you about that. And of course we get on and uh, they start talking about a, a stock that I've never heard of before. And then uh, luckily while they were talking about it, I, I Googled it just to see what it was. And they're like, you know, pomp, you got any thoughts? And I was like, are we talking about a company right now that has no product, no revenue, and is valued at $15 billion because it just went through a SPAC? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, okay, that's what I think about it, right? It's like, <laughs> you know, that, that's about my analysis. It's just like, uh, you guys say venture capital is crazy. Like, this sounds pretty nuts, too. Yeah, no, no, that, that I mean, like some of these projections that, that you look at in these investor decks, like they look pretty similar to the WeWork projections, except uh, that, that WeWork showed its investors, except at least WeWork had revenue. Uh, these, these guys have, have none. And it's like, you're going to be the fastest growing company ever, like faster than Google by like four years to get to $10 billion. And you, you, you haven't made a car yet. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, listen, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Everyone go buy the book. Highly recommend it. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Bye.